Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantia. And today, we are joined by no one, because we couldn't round up a guest for today's podcast. And we were just talking about doing sound effects, and apparently Peter's bringing his own. (laughs) But we are still here, and we're going to talk about the lectionary text for this coming week. We're not in Lent yet, but we're headed that direction. Mm. And so, I don't know, I think the lectionary just kind of finds these little niches in the calendar. It's like, let's cram this in here. The story, and, yeah, because we were jumping ahead. For We were talking about the Sermon on the Mount for the past three weeks, mm-hmm. which is Matthew chapter 4, 5, and 6, roughly. And then now we're here in Matthew chapter 17. And it's like out of the blue. Out of, for the gospel passage. but yeah, uh, Luke does. I mean, this is not the lectionary, but like if you read the way Luke kind of tracks you get to where it's the the travel narrative. Jesus fixed his gaze on, on Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it's like, okay, now every story that we haven't had a chance, we, every story says Luke that I haven't had a chance to put in there, well, it's a road trip. Let's just cram it in there. Yeah. And so I, I think this is, you know, since we're, we're, we're after Advent and Christmas and we're coming up on Lent, I think this is the lectionary folk, whoever... Mm. devises that it's their version of Luke's travel narrative. It's like, let's, let's put this story here. Let's put this story here. It, not necessarily story because they're not all stories, but it's an interesting, mm. it's an interesting topic sh- switch. In a way though, there is some sort of poetic uh, beauty to the way. So let's spoiler alert. We're talking about the transfiguration. Okay. That's what on transfiguration Sunday. Yeah. Right. Uh, but there is some, some sort of poetic beauty to talking about the transfiguration, which is a mountaintop experience. If you're ever going to call anything in the Bible a mountaintop experience, it is the transfiguration. As like the kickoff or like the last Sunday before Lent, because we do see Lent as a journey towards Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. And Lent is, a, is kind of a valley. A mm-hmm. spiritual valley, a valley of the shadow of death. And so, you, so you get really excited, jazzed up, yeah, to carry you through, yeah, the the valley. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you look back to the Psalms, the songs of ascent, right, were songs that pilgrims to Jerusalem would sing on their way up to Jerusalem for some holiday, and including Passover, for example. They're all about how great the temple is. And many of these pilgrims were coming from the east. They were coming from uh, parts of um, Israel that were west and east of the Jordan River, or at least, and some from further off, some of the Jews who had continued to live in the diaspora in Babylon and other places. This is a path of migration. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you've got Moses on Mount Nebo, who's declaring with Deuter- through Deuteronomy and, and, and Exodus, like this triumphal entry into the promised land mm-hmm. that he's not going get to get to see. That's the numbers reading from no, well, Deuteronomy last, from last week. Last week we read Deuteronomy, yeah. Right. And so in a, in, a, in a similar way, we've got the transfiguration to talk about this Sunday. It's a mountaintop experience, a look over into the promised land, and one that the disciples are instructed not to say anything about until the resurrection happens. And now you are spoiling things. But, but he, speaking of which, he, he mentioned the Psalms. 
we're not going to talk about the Psalms because it's, it's still me. I, I don't like Psalms. <laughs> Psalms are great. They just don't. We can't talk about every scripture. I like reading them. I just don't like preaching about them or yeah talking about them too too much. When I it, it, I was ruined by it. Our, our poor listeners. I was ruined on the Psalms when I took uh, Old Testament wisdom and poetry class, and it was a great class. Mm. But assignment day one, read Psalms. Which one? Yes. So all like of all of them, straight through. And Everyone then assignment fishing. week two, read Proverbs. Yeah. Which one? Again, yes. All of them. And it gets so redundant and mm. repetitive. And those are two things I can't stand when I'm reading things. And it's not their fault. It's my fault. You know? Yeah. It's a collection of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, there's a lot of value in reading certain books of the Bible straight through beginning to end. For example, Romans. Well, or anything with a letter, narrative or letter a, from Paul or a anything. structure. Yeah. Because you don't get, especially with Paul, you don't understand the narrative and the argumentative arc unless you read the whole thing through. Yeah. yeah. Um, but with Psalms, which is a collection, as you said, I'm not sure that there is a. It was not intended to arc. do that. Maybe yeah. the the editors and redactors kind of they did put things in certain places in Psalms, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. Well, the point of this class was not to find something like that. It was if we're going to talk about it, you need to have read it. And so, right, right. Familiar. Hey, read it all. And so, anyway, all right. So we are what we. That's what we aren't going to talk about. But we are going to talk about. Second Peter, yes, which is an epistle, a general epistle, attributed to attributed to, but that is not us saying was written by. Go ahead, attributed to the apostle Peter, mm-hmm. and indeed seems to be written in his voice. So whether it was actually the apostle Peter who wrote this or someone who was writing a letter, a um, disciple of him, yeah, on on behalf of or in the voice of Peter, that's kind of the perspective that we get, which is helpful. Because Peter was present at the Transfiguration. Pseudonymity, folks. Pseudonymity. Okay. Which means? You're using a pseudonym. Pseudonym. Yes. Same name. Pseudo, like a f- no, fake name. F- a fake name. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. Got it. Like it's not plagiarism. It's a way of honoring the person you're following. Anyway. Yeah. And it is helpful. It's helpful insight. So, without further ado, let's hear it. All right. So, Second Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will. But men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that is the end of the pericope. Thank you. You're welcome. Let the people hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Okay. 
<laughs> Some people end the scripture reading like that. I have never heard that. Hmm. I think they do that in Episcopalian churches. We'll have to ask Mother Karen about that. All right. Where do you want to start, Court? I would like to start at the beginning, which Sound of Music tells me is a very good place to start. Cleverly devised myths. Yes. Or in my translation, crafty myths. Crafty myths. We have to talk about this term myth. We have to unpack it. Well, before we get to myth, let's talk about cleverly devised or, or crafty. Okay. So as you're reading, and I don't think that it's necessarily what Peter means, the book Peter. Okay. Oh, second yeah. Peter. Yeah, not yeah, you. Yeah. Um, so, and that's going to get old, by the way. So we need to, <laughs> we need to be careful not to. We can just refer that to this person as the writer yes. or the author. I don't think that th that this is what the writer means, but it's easy to read this with a tone, uh, it, like like it's almost a pejorative term, um, cleverly devised, especially when it's the way yours. Crafty. Crafty. Mm -hmm. um, like there's some ominous work going on. Mm. And, I mean, it could be that in using this word or this either word for the one, the translation you used or words cleverly devised in the one that I read, it's, it's so easy to seem like um, Peter is, is making a comparison to other people who what they say is false, but what we say is real. Mm. And I don't know that that's what's going on. It could just be the fact that he wants to essentially say, look, we're not clever enough mm. to devise this, so it must be real. We're just giving it to you plain and simple, yeah. the way I, we received it. Uh, I watched this <clears throat> We don't show. need to decorate it up. There's no bells and whistles. Yeah, this is unadulterated. But I watch this show every day in the mornings called Morning Joe on MSNBC. And Joe Scarborough, like he was a politician or whatever. And he always, when he wants to make this play, like he's a simple guy. He just says, I'm just a country lawyer from Florida or whatever, or Alabama, wherever he's from. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, everyone knows. You, know, you were also... Uh, congressman and you've been a lawyer forever and you've been in the in the, in the inter entertainment or whatever news entertainment business for mm -hmm. 20 years so no one's buying it but and, and that's kind of the joke and so it's almost to me as if by comparison the author is saying you know i'm just a country disciple mm -hmm. so i i am i don't have the bandwidth upstairs to come up with this religion and trick you right now peter is a lot of things but yeah. simple is not one of them mm -hmm. um he's borderline bipolar um i would say because he's either like all in or all out all the time he's manic and then he'll, you won't hear from him for a while because he's mm -hmm. depressive and so this is my <laughs> thousands of year later diagnosis yeah yeah um, psychoanalyzing our author here all right. So what he's saying, I would say another way of saying this is like, you can't make this stuff up. When, yeah. You know, this is, and, 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 and I think that's, I think that's true. Like the story of, of Jesus and the transfiguration and the death and res, the, the, his crucifixion and resurrection, like to say that the son of God was incarnate mm -hmm. in a human being and became, uh, the savior of the world by 
being crucified. Like, it's such a weird story already that, like, anybody who was making it up, like, what, you know, why would you go to such lengths? Yeah. They're just trying to tell it how they saw it, and they know it's weird already. So, a couple of things in there. Um, first of all, we're talking about essentially the, the entire event mm. of Christ's appearance, ministry, death, burial, resurrection. The Christ yeah. event. Yes. Or the moment, or whatever word you want to use. The salvific occurrence of the Son of God. So that that's what we just summed up in like two sentences. Yeah. He, he or she, the, the author, uses one specific snapshot of that mm -hmm. and we still haven't gotten to what does he mean by the word myth we, we've been we've been hung up on cleverly devised or crafty yeah yeah but well let's catch our readers up then well too. let's start with where a lot of people are okay to hear the term myth means false yeah something that is a myth must be a fib or a lie is a story a legend uh some kind of um allegory you know, it's not a it's not a real occurrence. It didn't happen mm -hmm. that way. And that's not necessarily true. Well, what is true? Well, I mean, just the term myth is a literary term, rhetorical device, whatever you want to call it, that describes anything that is a story used in religion. Essentially, mm. um, it is sometimes it's a story that explains like an origin story. Um, you know, how do we get mixed up? Tower of Babel, that kind of thing. Sometimes it is, for instance, the story of Jesus's virgin birth. Mm. OK, this is, is a story that is used. In, um, when I say used, I don't mean exploitatively, but it is used to explain how someone could come into the earth sin free if you believe in original sin for instance yeah. so there's a so another way i i would say is that it's a story which involves um a god mm -hmm. god or a god acting in uh the world yes right because if we talk about myths in general um a lot of us could think of certain myths from uh greek religion yes. you know, greek mythology that we call it these are stories about gods, which is interesting. So in a way, if you're using myth as a literary category, mm -hmm. then it contrasts with something like the novel, in which there is no divine intervention. Uh, the most important thing is human uh, emotions and human action in basically drama, mm -hmm. right? And so most of us, in in the Western world, I think, our minds have been shaped by this concept of the novel, that the most important thing about a story is how the humans, what decisions humans make and how they feel about that and how they interact with each other. A myth is, is, a, is a, as a literary category, is something that is going to involve not just human actors, but divine actors as well. Yeah. But... I have another way of looking at myths that I want to I want to try out on you. Posit your idea. Okay, so this this understanding of myths 
um, is one that I have learned from studying a French anthropologist named René Girard. Mm -hmm. And myth comes from the Greek word mis, meaning to cover over. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is a literally covering over of the eyes and ears. This is the concept that... that it's like which, the monkeys see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. Exactly. So, so Girard would argue like more towards this, the standard understanding of a definition of a myth that maybe it's some made-up story, right? Mm -hmm. There are aspects of it that are, that are fake or that are intended to, um, what's the word? Not delude, not dilute, but dilute, dilude. What? <laughs> uh, to, lead, to lead us astray, to help, to, to, to actually keep us from seeing the truth of the story. Okay. Um, to delusions. Delusions. Yes, yeah. exactly. Is that the right word? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so when I read this verse, verse 16, we didn't repeat cleverly, uh, cleverly devised myths, or we didn't, re we didn't follow cleverly devised myths, or we didn't repeat crafty myths when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, we're not trying to cover up anything here. Mm -hmm as myths often do. And, and Rene Girard would say that the, the way that myths cover up, what the thing they're covering up is, um, is human violence or sacred violence. When, when human beings, as for example a lynch mob, are the ones who then later on tell the story of what happened. The winners create, write the story, yeah. They create a myth in which the innocent victim who was killed is the bad guy is turned into a monster of some kind the bad guy an evil force but a powerful force a non-human force which then justifies the action of the mob or the heroes now mm -hmm. to kill this person off so in the story of Christ we don't have um, I think from the disciples perspective we're not we're not creating a myth even though Peter could have done so because he participated in a way in the crucifixion of Christ by denying him mm -hmm. and by not standing with him until the end. So he has an opportunity here to, uh, to follow or even to compose a crafty myth that makes him look like the hero. Peter's not going to do that and he's saying, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. I was wrong. I was part of this. I'm just going to tell you what happened. So we have uh, probably beaten cleverly devised myth to death, and I think have given the reader, not the reader. I'm thinking about my children's books still. Have our given listener. the listener what? Yeah, our listeners uh, have given the listener some things to consider. Um, but let's consider what Peter offers as his example of why you should be able to trust him. Mm. So we're not using myths either because he wants to demythologize or because he is saying that he's not smart enough to come up with them or because everybody else is doing it. For whatever reason, use the word myth. So here's what happened. The reason you can believe us. We saw the power of our Lord. We saw it with our own eyes. And gives us a specific example in the next verse. For he received or he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him 
by the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And you could think, well, that might have been the baptism, or you could think, depending on which gospel you're looking at, Mm -hmm. or you could think that was the transfiguration. And so we get verse 18. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the mountain, on the holy mountain. And so it has to be transfiguration. has to be. Because you can't have a baptism on a holy mountain unless you brought your water up there. Well, I mean, there could be a spring or something, but it, it'd be tough. Okay. Methodist. You, you can't know. have an immersion baptism yeah. on a holy mountain. <laughs> I was going to say, Methodist could. Baptist can't. You know. All right, we won't go down that road. But you're right to say he's, he's, he's turning from this, uh, you know, basically saying what he's not doing, using myths, to what he is doing, which is giving an eyewitness account. This I was there. We saw with our own eyes, and we heard it with our own ears. And 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 yet, as we read both this account and the gospel account, we come away with the fact that, yeah, you were there, but you haven't really shared much about what you saw. Yeah. And and did they understand? And I, what what does transfigured mean, you know? Like, good question. What did... Because when he comes down from the mountain, no one says, oh, man, you look different. You look different. Yeah. But how did he look on the mountain? And this Glowing is, and stuff. Yeah, white robes and stuff. So this is, um, you know, without looking at the actual text of the Transfiguration, uh, it's we don't need to go into too much detail here, but he was, he was dressed in dazzling white robes. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I think that, that, that should tickle our memory if we're, like, very familiar with Scripture would be... Um, Leviticus chapter 16 mm-hmm. where the priest has to dress up in these white robes to prepare himself to be um, angelic in a way. And you could also go forward and think about uh, the throne room scenes in Revelation. There's a lot of talk about dazzling white robes there as well. Right. Yeah, in the, in the Old Testament uh, when you have a prophet, no, an angel, for example, appear, there, that that appearance is oftentimes just a stand-in for God. Oh, yeah. And when the priests dress up in white and wear a crown on their heads that says Yahweh, mm-hmm. like, that's what they're doing. They're like, I am standing in the presence of God. I am, in, I am sort of blurring that line. And that's what happens to Jesus on the mountain. He becomes, or he, his image, his... his uh, he resembles aura. the go-between. Yeah. And who else shows up? Moses. Elijah, Elijah. also go-betweens. Right, right. Um, And Peter and James and John. Who will be. Get to see this. They they will be the, it's it's like you got three generations. You have the old school. Yeah. And then you have Jesus. And then you have the next, the up and coming, which is probably why they were invited. That's cool. I haven't thought about it like that. Um, That they, you know, these are going to be the new prophets in a way. Yeah, uh, they will represent God on earth, just like Elijah and Moses and just like Jesus, and then they do it, and I'm gonna, not going to leave us out, just like we, God still wants people to represent God on earth today. We have an opportunity. I think I would extend that opportunity to all humans and to some extent all of creation, the mm-hmm. opportunity to... Um, convey a prophetic message from God because Christ became flesh or God became flesh and dwelt among us the material is now imbued with the divine God has become flesh God is with us 
Um, and so they say in verse 19, we also have a most reliable prophetic word. So they're, they're, they're kind of like saying what you have said here, that they're sort of the next generation. We have uh -huh. a prophetic word. How do we know that? Because we, we were there to see this event. Exactly. Yeah. And you would do well to pay attention to it. <laughs> and here comes my favorite part of the whole reading. Okay, Keep reading. I just wanted to give the listeners a heads up. You would do well to pay attention to this most reliable prophetic word, just as you would to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning rises in your morning star rises in your heart. So we have this image of of light piercing darkness. Yeah. And what I love about it, and I know you've heard my take on this, but what I love about it is it's not given from the perspective of the light shiner. It's the one who is in the darkness seeing the light, which is very rare in the Bible. We're called to be a light for others to see. Mm -hmm. And here, um, P Peter is using this uh, example mm -hmm. to call you to pay attention. Well, how much do you need to pay attention? Pay attention as if you're stumbling in the dark and there is one light shining. You would not be able to help mm -hmm. seeing it. And you would probably not be able to get your attention away from it. Mm. And, it, I mean, it's almost impossible. Like, it, it can be dangerous, too. Like, if you're driving in the dark and you see headlights and you're really tired, you kind of drift towards the headlights and sometimes into the car and you all die. But um, I, I intentionally go I love the other your way. imagination. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> but anyway, I, I think that it's, it's, it stands out in this category of analogies that's so often used, mm. light shining. I mean, look how often, even in the Old Testament, Israel is called to be a light for other nations. Yeah. And it's always from the, the, the broad broadcasting of, I should say, wide broadcasting of light to hit as many people as possible. And this is the opposite. This is a narrow laser beam. You can't help but look at it. And it's, uh, I think it's remarkable that Peter, like you said, is not claiming to be the light, even yeah. though I believe that as, as, as a disciple of Christ, you know, the light of Christ does shine through the apostle and the apostles. But he's saying, I'm like you. I, yeah. I was in the dark, too. Uh, and he's instead just pointing. He's, you know, uh, he's saying, there is a light. That and the morning star will dawn in your hearts. You do well to pay attention to it. Yeah, because this happened to us. Like, and we saw it, and we didn't understand at the time, but now we understand because of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Which, at the time of the transfiguration, of course, they had not experienced yet. They had not experienced yet, and Jesus told them, "Don't say anything about this until the resurrection." And maybe the reason was because you won't understand what this means until that happens. So what can we do today with the transfiguration? We see what Second Peter does with it, mm. which is to use it as some sort of, not evidence that people should believe him, but reason for, for the way that he came to believe what he believes. Mm -hmm. um, and so it kind of, it doesn't necessarily bolster his claim, but it informs why he is how he is. But what do we do with it? Hmm. Well, um, I see this passage as an 
encouragement, if that's a word, of the hope that I try to carry with me. Uh-huh. That um, I'm hearing from someone who has seen with his own eyes and heard with his own he- ears and has now come to understand the significance of Christ being transfigured on the mountain as representative of God, as God's presence, just as priests in Levitical times uh, were, that that Christ has been uh, made known to us, as he says, um, as God's Son whom God dearly loves. So I am here. I, I agree with everything you just said, but I want to add something to it. You said I'm hearing from someone, and then you go on to explain what Peter encountered. And I would add, who is no more deserving than any of us to to see that. Mm-hmm. And so if if in fact, in some ways, might be less. I mean, Peter screwed up a lot, but that's what I love about how the Bible uses these characters, mm-hmm. because none of them are any better, smarter, holier, with some exception, than than any of us. Right. And so, if Peter was invited to witness the glory of Christ, then so could be any of us. And there's some hope in that. Mm-hmm. Most important, you must know that no prophecy or, of Scripture represents the prophet's own understanding of things because no prophecy ever came by human will. Instead, men and women ha- led by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter is not doing a soliloquy. That's from verses 20 and 20 21. And 21. Yeah. Um, do we tend to? I mean, it sounds like this is almost a cautionary passage, like maybe suggesting that some people, maybe even ourselves, tend to think of prophecy as something that comes from human will. And he's saying, you must know that no prophecy of Scripture represents the prophet's own understanding of things. But no prophecy ever came by human will. Instead, men and women, led by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So. What's the point of sharing this with us? What, what's the point of cautioning us against considering prophecy to be someone's own thinking or understanding or will? It's, the question is not just what's the point. Mm. The question, and you alluded to this when you were asking that question, is why here? Mm. And to get to your question about what's the point, uh, I don't know if, if he's anticipating people arguing with him. I don't know the situation in which he is writing. None of us really do. We can take our best stabs at it. But it does seem like it's to bolster this argument against a challenge that we can't see. Mm-hmm. And that's just to me. Someone's saying that maybe they fabricated yeah. this story. Which, I mean, it makes sense because we led off with we did not cl- uh, follow cleverly devised myths. Yeah. And so uh, we saw it. We didn't... Uh, we didn't make it up. We saw it. We were there. We heard the voice. We saw the light and the flowing robes and all that. And then we get back to. We didn't. Make we didn't make up. it up. Yeah. Yeah. So we're starting to dig in, and we're starting to see maybe kind of the underlying motivation for the for 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 the authors writing this passage. There probably was some sort of a challenge to the the proclamation, the good news that the apostles were spreading. Someone was saying, they just made that up. It's a clever myth. Mm-hmm. Well, so 
can we use our imaginations for a second to think about like how that argument would go? Like put ourselves in the shoes of those who are saying they're just making this up. Uh-huh. What what's the value of spreading that kind of rumor of saying the, pro the this, these disciples they're just weaving a clever uh, myth they're they're hoodwinking you they're pulling the wool over your eyes so are you asking what would be the potential gain in in fooling yeah. people what's the what's the reason that someone would same, try to undermine the same the message thing of the... history history is cyclical mm. what is currency now mm. followers mm. If you go to write a book mm -hmm. and you want to sell it to an author mm -hmm. or to a, you're the author, if you want to sell it to a publisher, one of the questions they will ask is how many followers do you have on social media? Mm. Because that's currency now. Mm -hmm. And it was then too. Mm. Uh, the, all these uprisings, you had prophetic movements, you had revolts, you had all, all these different, uh, there's a book that I love by Richard Horsley called Bandits, Prophets, and Messiahs. And I think everyone should read it. And it just goes into all these different movements, social movements that are happening in the first century. That aside, first and second centuries. Uh, that aside. Oh, there were people who were trying to just gain a following. Yeah, and, but, but to gain a following is to have a voice. Mm -hmm. It's power. And, and you remember they're in a, an oppressed society. So mm -hmm. there's, there's having a voice that you you, you got to be really careful and massage this perfectly because if your voice gets too loud, Rome sees you. They hear your voice and they shut it down. Um, but if usually but by you want it to be you and yes, everyone who yes, follows you, yes. yeah. So you want to you want to have enough of a voice mm -hmm. that in your local society you start to matter and you can you can make a good living that way. Yeah, and then if you but you don't want to get too loud because then the Romans shut it down. Right. Yeah, and you, we see some of this during the Passion narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, and and also, uh, even when Peter from Acts, right. who may or may not be the author, uh, is challenged. Yeah. If it's of God, it'll survive. And if not, let's just leave it alone. And there's yeah, a lot yeah. of followers. Here, that was, yeah. I was actually going to say that. I'm hearing some echoes of Gamaliel yep. in the Sanhedrin saying... Uh, be very careful what you do with these people, uh -huh. these disciples. Uh, if 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 this message that they're they're telling us is not from God, then it will it will go away. It will dissolve. It'll disappear with them when they die. But if it is from God, you may find yourselves struggling against God. Mm -hmm. It's just not a good bet. Yeah. So I, I I guess the point to all this is. Um, that there there really could have been reason mm -hmm. to doubt. Yeah. So for whoever it is that Peter is talking to or writing to in this in this section, they they may have good reason to doubt, and Peter may very well know that. Yeah. And so he comes out of the gate while and and bookends his argument with, "We didn't make this up. We're not smart enough, and also be careful. Don't." Don't criticize this because we're not making it up. Yeah. Well, and I think now I'm starting to uh, realize something that um, one of the reasons that he maybe needed to make this kind of uh, or bracket this statement about Jesus being the Son of God with, with this, this message that we're not making this up here 
we're not cleverly devising this, um, or it's not coming from human will. It's because there's real danger in following Jesus in, in this message. If you if you if you believe this, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that is to say, the anointed Messiah, that is to say, the the true King and Lord of all, then who are you saying is not the true King and Lord of all? Well, I mean, it goes up the chain, but eventually to the emperor. To the emperor, right. Yeah. So there's real danger in believing this message. And I think that um, the the apostles, if we read Acts, uh, were under a lot of pressure and scrutiny because a lot of folks thought these, these people are creating a revolutionary movement. Mm-hmm. They are trying to off, uh, throw off the, um, the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. And that's a fair criticism. They're because, starting a revolt. You know, even, in, even in the beginning stages of Acts, what are, what are the disciples saying? Well, is now when we're going to go and yeah. take your rightful place? I mean, you did raise from the dead. You're pretty unstoppable. The sons of yeah. thunder, John, yeah. James and John. Yeah, uh, Zebedee. The, who were with who were with Peter and Jesus at the moment of transfiguration, right? They're the ones who kind of like in the garden um, or at, at certain times along the path while they're walking with Jesus, somebody contradicts the message or um, threatens to shut down the movement in some way. And these are the ones that say, can we kill him now, Peter? Yeah. Can we kill him now, Jesus? Yeah, and then yeah, we're going to argue over who gets to be on your right, and yeah. then when that doesn't work, we're going to send our mama to ask you. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. It, so can you blame people for thinking, well, these guys again? You know, they're they're all about you know trying to overthrow Rome and take their seats at, in the throne. Yeah. And so, I think when we le- read these verses with a twenty first century lens, it can get a little not dangerous, but it can it can muddy the waters. Because we're looking back on it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I, I always feel the need to be the advocate for an imaginary interlocutor here. But I, I think that we shouldn't be too harsh on people who would doubt Peter. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm there, I doubt him too. Mm. And and I think that that's the wisdom in this. Mm. That whether they're already engaged in a written argument or not especially if they aren't, Peter anticipates. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not just, I don't blame them for doubting. It's almost like Peter saying, and I don't blame you for doubting either. Because mm-hmm. I know you're going to doubt because this story's a little crazy. Mm-hmm. But the craziness of it, as our Peter said, you can't make this stuff up. Mm-hmm. The craziness of it almost bolsters its believability. Right. And now getting back finally to verses 20 and 21, I am one who is a big believer in interpretation. I just said that wrong. A big believer in interpretation because I don't think we can exist as learners without interpreting. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean just translating languages. I no, mean, just all... As you start to read, we yes. start to interpret. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, look at all the things we, we said in just that little discussion over bookending the main point with these two disclaimers. Yeah. yeah. We talked about the historical context, we talked about sus- uh, suspicions, we talked about societal movements within the, you know, like the different Jewish sectarianism. I mean, these are all matters of interpretation. 
Yes. And so I don't think this is the Bible saying it is a sin to interpret Scripture. Mm-hmm. Because that is it's akin, akin to the Bible saying it's a sin to read Scripture. Yeah. And I don't. it's not very self-serving. Right. Yeah. Yeah, these disciples, obviously they're feeling this pressure from the outside. They're telling a dangerous message that is going to put the people who actually believe this at risk mm-hmm. uh, um, because they're going, to, they're going to be considered dissidents. They're going to be considered um, revolutionaries or um, some sort of uh, uh, yeah, uprising. And so I guess if we take Peter at his word then, and, and we, we, we acknowledge that he's not making this up. He's just telling it because he feels compelled to, to share this message that, that Jesus really is the Son of God, that Jesus really is um, the, the beloved one, the, God's presence. Um, th- then what is the, what's the payoff? What's the, what's the upshot of that? If that's really the truth, and he's saying it even despite knowing that he's putting the people who might believe it at risk, what what's the motivating underlying um, reason why he continues to do that, continues to advocate? I think that question is a good place to make a practical shift. Mm. So the Bible often tells us, and we certainly hear it from preachers and stuff, to bear witness, to be a witness for Jesus. Yeah. Far too often in recent history, I don't think it's been going on throughout all of you know the church's heyday but really since modernity the response to that is well if i'm going to witness then i have to have a compelling argument that and i have to know the bible back and forth and i have to be able to to prove god's existence and all Mm -hmm. these these different qualifiers that's never what we're asked to do Mm -hmm. we are asked to simply what a witness does like in a trial is to tell the people what you've seen yes if Jesus, no, I'm sorry. If Peter can tell this story, as unbelievable as it is, to the average person who didn't see it, if Peter can take the risk of telling people something that he seems to know they're not going to believe, then can't we all Mm -hmm. because most of us have much more believable encounters with God than the transfiguration. Yeah. Okay. And most of us, especially 2000 years later, most of us have ways in which we've seen God's God moving in our lives, be it directly in our lives or as we watch God moving in the lives of those around us that are much more translatable and makes sense in our world right, right, right. than Peter and the Transfiguration or even the other things that have happened mm-hmm. to Peter. And so if he is willing to take a stab, considering all the risks that have or that are at play, certainly we can too. Yeah. And certainly um, if we can divorce ourselves from this notion that we have to be road scholars hmm. in order to go and show the world what we know. Hmm. Um, and, and that they may believe us or they may not get comfortable with that. We can do this. Right. And so, and you know, preachers ha- have a calling 
but everyone is called to witness. Yeah, and the and the and I think this there's good news here that that our witness does not need to be complicated. Correct. We don't have to have uh, you know fancy speech as Paul as Paul talks about it, or 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 wisdom. Cleverly devised or cleverly devised myths. We don't need to structure our argument perfectly so that we convince people that Jesus is the Son of God. Because if Jesus is the Son of God, then even our most ridiculous, unbelievable stories will be something that God can use to spread the message of truth. Yeah. And we, we've also gone the other way with it. So one is to psych ourselves out of telling our story because we don't think it's good enough or we don't think we're smart enough. Yeah. But then the other thing is we're just lazy. Hmm. Like a chick track does not tell your story. Right. It's just lazy. Right, yeah. right, right. I think it's a call to speak about our personal experience yes. and our personal encounter with God, even if we don't, um, even if on reflecting on our own story, we think no one's going to believe this, or I even have trouble figuring out how to put the words to this, that we don't gain anything by dressing it up. Mm -hmm. We it, don't gain anything. I think that's where Peter nails it. Mm. This is what I saw. Yeah. You don't have to believe me. Right. I want you to. I want you to know but that this is what I saw. Yeah, it you you may be taking on some risk if you believe me. Yeah. Um. Or, but if God convinces you of this, trust that. Mm -hmm. Because, I, and now I'm thinking of another verse of scripture where it says, um, uh, where it says, no one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will be forgiven. Oh wow. Um, when the Holy Spirit works. When, when we feel in our hearts, even if we don't have the words to describe it, that the Holy Spirit has been present and has accomplished something in our lives, to write it off or to try to explain it away, that is denying the Holy Spirit. That is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Well, I just feel really convicted right now because <laughs> I do that all the time. But, but I think there's good news here. It's that like even if we don't know the right words to say, all we have to say is we... This happened, and I can't say anything else except for what, what I know, what I've seen with my eyes and heard with my ears and felt with my heart. Which is exactly what we are called to do. All right. And there's a beautiful thing there. So I am going to have to interrupt us because I have almost no battery left. <laughs> because my uh, wonderful input aggregate thingy here has taken up all the ports, so I can't plug it in while we're talking. That's so, fine. But I think it's good that we end here anyway because... Um, we're never going to explain the transfiguration. No. And there's a reason why it's in the lectionary twice every year. Because there's so much mystery packed into this that um, we're never going to actually solve exactly what happened or what the, the full meaning of it was. We just have to sit with that mystery. And Yeah, and, and if the Bible tells us anything, it's that we don't get all the answers. Mm. And we have to become comfortable trusting God in mystery. That is why it is faith right not just you know yeah. understanding a believable story is not what god offers us in 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 the story of jesus christ uh but the power of faith gives us um gives us the hope that the resurrection is true even though it's unbelievable in in a certain sense so for pastor potluck we have turned our attention to easter Apparently, we'll probably get off of that soon, but because we do still have to go through Lent, we have to but, go through Lent. But we're going to keep our eyes on, on the on this lamp. 
Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, you brought that back. So yeah, so we're gonna focus on the one lamp of well, one ray of light that's piercing the darkness. For Pastor Potluck, I'm Court Green, and I'm Peter Constantia. Thank you for joining us. Peace.